0: Hi and welcome to another canny conversations podcast powered by the pathway group. My name's Mark Wakely and I'm one of the team who bring you these podcasts each week. In this series Safras Ali will be talking to some of the business people he's met and worked with in his 23 years at the heart of the west midlands business community and of course some of the businesses that are part of the multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance. In this episode we hear the first part of Safraz's conversation with Scott Parkin from the Institute of Employability Professionals. Scott and Safraz discuss the growth and impact of the Institute of Employability Professionals and how Scott's leadership has propelled the IEP into an international realm offering membership opportunities, networking and learning initiatives. The discussion delves into the significance of the Fellowship Programme, professional growth pathways within the organisation and collaborative efforts with stakeholders to enhance quality, standards and address the sector challenges. Scott's vision for fostering a supportive community within the sector shines through, emphasising the power of human connection and collective action in driving positive change. So let's join the conversation.
1: Hello and welcome to another series of Candy Conversation podcast. This is series five, and, and we're having a fantastic time talking to leaders within our sector, within the sector that uh, we all love, uh, a sector that does a lot for people. It is very much a people oriented sector, a sector that I talk about and cheerlead. But this individual that we're meeting today, he is no doubt the the main catalyst for change within the sector. He is a person that I personally look up to, a role model, uh influencer, a true influencer, and now absolutely international jet setter that is. Scott, welcome. Thank you for coming.
2: Thanks, us. It's great to be here. And much, you're too kind, by the much,
1: way. Much, much, much appreciated, Scott. And every single time we meet, I feel inspired, I feel energized. And the missus says to me, you know, what what's happened to you? I say, well I've met uh the individual that is a legend within our sector, Scott, and I'm serious to say that you do bring a bit of a spring to me every single time we meet.
2: Well thank you. And uh mutual stuff, <laughs> so thank you very much.
1: Thank thank you so much, sir. So Scott, before we go into, into things, you've been on a sort of international jet setting tour. You are a rock star. So where where, where, where have you been? Where
2: what <laughs> I, have you been doing? I, I don't know if this is gonna be an hour of this. It's uh, it's perfectly wonderful for a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. But anyway, um yeah, we've we've been uh, obviously we've been working with the IEP for twelve years now. We've been formulating what we're good at. We've been building service and support. And a couple of years ago, we decided, or three years ago, we decided that we would uh, look to take that to other places in the world. And um, it's a really interesting concept because there is no other country in the world that has a professional institute for employability of the likes of the IEP. So the opportunity there is pretty significant
1: okay so let's let's try and get to some of the detail if we can Scott so Institute of employability professionals a real change maker of an organization you're the group chief chief executive uh you were part of that organization from the early days and organization under your leadership has really grown and and now is on that international sort of growth phase so talk to us a little bit about what the organization does your role multi-hats that you wear and some of the challenges that you've been dealing with so take it from there please start. Yeah. Scott.
2: <laughs> no thanks it's um yeah i mean it's it's not really been a very easy journey. I mean the IEP is only 12 years old. Um, the sector itself really in terms of contracting and commissioning in the sector is only 30 35 years old. It's a young mm-hmm. sector. Some of the challenges we've faced over that period of time is that there is no prescriptive regulation. around the capability and occupational competence within the sector. And we've done really, really good work around building career journeys, building learning, enabling people to share good practice and come together and do that in a collaborative and collegiate way. We, like most other professional institutes, offer learning opportunities, networking, engagement. But I think over the last couple of years, we've really, really started to look at the ecosystems of delivery, what are the key components that need to be present to enable citizens, customers, participants, whatever we want to call the people that we serve, uh, to get the very, very best service possible. And yes, that takes competency uh, under an individual's occupation, but it also takes the culture of an organization to be one of continuous improvement, to be a qualitative organization, to understand in those quality elements that need to be present. So we've gone and we've built alongside the sector of quality improvement framework. We are now taking that one step further with the Center for Employability Excellence. And we want to make sure that governments in general and those policymakers within it are taking the very best research from the very best settings on a global basis to make the decisions they need to make about service design, how much uh, services are funded, how in essence you go about delivering the very very best for those people who who need that service support.
1: there's no doubt that you've championed on a personal level the uh, employability professionals. that's when uh, you first came on my radar in terms of you know uh, trying to professionalize the the sector, trying to get people to pick up the right sort of qualifications and so forth and people for people to see it as a career. Uh, you know we've struggled as a sector to retain people, retain talent. It's no doubt been a challenge and the the work that the sector does, it affects all of us really to a certain level, as anybody who understands employability uh, will understand the fact that, you know, it's it's not an easy task that we have. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about some of those sort of journeys that uh, the sector has, has faced and some of the changes. Then I'll pick up a little bit, if we can, in terms of how the IEP has sort of adapted and changed as well, because as you said, it's not been easy in terms of running this organisation, and you've been there, and you've you've had many doors that you've knocked on. Now you know you're going into a sort of a, a growth and scale-up phase, and you're making that difference. But it's a different challenge now. So we'll come back to that second bit, but let's deal with the sector itself.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think we've done quite a bit of work, although there's still a lot more to do around uh, the boom and bust nature of contracting yeah. within the sector. And I don't particularly like that term, but I think it describes it quite well. It's important to state here, though, that the IEP is structurally set up to support anybody that works in employability practice. So notwithstanding those people that work in the public sector, in job center plus. but if we just take the private provision market sector, or those NGOs or third sector organization working in the space, for many, many years, contracting has been very, very cyclical, obviously following economic need. But contract by contract, not always buffering up against each other in terms of when a contract ends and a contract begins. And so what we found in the sector is we've had lots of really, really capable, amazing people who maybe early on weren't trained, or at least were not trained to an institute standard, but are certainly now being. But for many, many years, we've had those people leave the sector and bring in new new people to the sector. So I think that's a significant challenge for the sector, constantly having to do that. With the restart commissioning, we saw post-pandemic so many very, very new people coming into the sector. And what we found was those individuals absolutely fundamentally front and centre required the occupational competence learning that we could provide. But we also found really interestingly because... A lot of people haven't been qualified in the sector. Is A lot of people that have been working in the sector for a long time were also picking up that learning and getting real benefit, either from certificating or accrediting their knowledge currently, or genuinely and often learning new things. So I think that boom and bust activity has been really, really hard for the sector to absorb. But in essence, that's that's the nature of where we're at. I think also, I won't get into this conversation particularly, but obviously political changes, there are um, policy changes that happen with successive governments and and even with new ministers. And, you know, we've had an, a number of new ministers over the last couple of years. So I think, you know, that does change the focus somewhat. But I think what we have been able to do is to bring alongside a lot of other people and partners in, in the sector, to bring people together to collaborate really effectively and partners at the Department of Work and Pensions to somewhat solve some of those challenges together, to at least be in really, really significantly positive dialogue, to talk about the issues, to not not be afraid to talk about the issues. And I see colleagues from many, many different organisations come together on a very regular basis to A, solve some of the challenges that the sector faces, but also equally importantly, through things like the React Partnership come together and solve and challenge some of the delivery elements that enable us to genuinely, probably for the first time, certainly sector-wide, make significant changes in the delivery aspects of programs while in live running of that program rather than waiting for uh, an evaluation further down the line, possibly two or three years later, when actually those participants on the program will have moved on and hopefully into work and you know obviously that's the Uh,
1: you know you talked about the fact that it has been a challenge in terms of running the organization and the organization now that we we all know and love and and understand what he does was slightly different in terms of obviously the early days so talk to us a a little bit about those sort of early days and the direction of travel and some of those sort of pivotal moments and, and the journey really well, I
2: think, I mean, I mean, the first thing to say when, thanks to colleagues at URSA and ALP and other provider colleagues at the time, the IEP was established on a grant-funded basis by UKCS. Um, I think it's, unfortunately, yeah. UKCS doesn't exist Anything anymore, well, but yeah. it, was, it was really helpful to get the IEP up and running. And that was fine, the establishment of an organization starting to build a philosophy. Uh, when I really started to get involved, and I got involved for two reasons. The first reason was... Mm-hmm. Genuinely, I thought that this was a great thing. Did I really understand what it was at that time? I don't think so. And I think many other people were in a similar position. I also, Saf, decided to take up Helen Richardson's kind of call to action to me. And and I blame her for everything, by the (laughs) way. She's a a wonderful human being, but I I blame her for everything. But um, I did it because I was at that point in my career. I thought, you know, genuinely exposure was useful. And so I would like to think that it was more of the former rather than the latter. But in essence, you know, I think we've all been through those, those conversations with ourselves about what we need to do. Yeah. So we had to move after three years from a grant funding position to a commercial position, mm. which was still quite difficult. We had mm. built a, an apprenticeship with Pearson
1: yeah.
2: and a number of other uh, organizations involved in that design and delivery, but we didn't really have an awful lot to offer. And so we were still in conversations about that philosophical conversation. Isn't this amazing? Wouldn't it be great if it was this? And to be fair to those providers of services and other people in the stakeholder group, they were happy to fund things on the intent that this was going to be something amazing. And it took a few years to get to the point of Mm. at least semi-amazing. And I think there were some key significant factors in that. Firstly, I think we were very fortunate to be able to engage with Pat Russell and Pat Russell come and join the board. After a few years of, you know, real significant problems, myself and Keith Faulkner and Patrick Hughes and a number of us, you know, trying our very best to to move this thing forward. And it was moving forward. Mm. But I think Pat Russell coming on board was a significant mm. development. Mm. I think she brought the the governance to my kind of... Slightly eclectic kind of personality, and still does to this day, which is wonderful as she's chair of the board now. I think the commercialization of the business, and you know what? I think actually having stuff to do, qualifications, networking, opportunity, having the time and space because of those initial partners helping us to get to a point where there's not a, much of an argument not to. But, you know, that philosophical shift into something that is we'd like to achieve this, and then it being real takes quite a considerable amount of time, particularly unlimited resources. I do remember one day being in a situation where it was touch and go whether we could afford to pay the one member of staff that we had wow. on time. There was never going to be any risk of not paying them at all, but on time, on, on time. that day that it was yeah. due, one member of staff it relied on one thing to just go right. And I vowed at that point in time, it was way before Pat's time or anything, I vowed yeah. at the time that would never, ever happen again.
1: Yeah,
2: And now we have 17 members yeah. of staff and 10 external partners, partners that we work with on a very regular basis. And that's growing, as you see from the yeah. announcements, that's right. almost every two or three weeks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That journey, thank you for sharing that. And, and to a certain level, even though it's uh, sort of completely limited by a guarantee, not-for-profit in terms of social, a social sort of organization, it's been like a startup to a certain level. You've been the entrepreneur that's come in and driven the organization Can you needed your entrepreneurial energy, your enthusiasm to lift and move the organization. And I can see that uh, even, even now, it's that entrepreneurial element that's really moving it forward. Uh, Scott, in terms of just breaking that down in terms of uh, the Institute of Employability Professionals, IEP, what is the sort of product mix? You've touched on it, but just let's go through the offer at this morning time. What does that offer look like in terms of the current state of play? Well,
2: the first thing I say is it, it never stands still. So if I forget <laughs> something or, or don't mention it, yeah, then uh, yeah. I apologize to all my staff who yeah. have worked very hard on something. <laughs> um, look, it's, it, it's building all the time. Yeah. So the first thing is that it is a membership organization where you can be part of something bigger than your personal life or your work life. This is far and away a different conversation to be had. I think that's really important. Yeah. The second thing within that, you get access to a lot of people who are like minded who want to do their very best to change or to support people, to change their lives. Mm. And I think that's really cathartic generally. Everybody Mm. I speak to in the sector, I go away with a smile on my face. Even when they've had challenges and problems, they found solutions. To those issues that they've been presented, and mm. um, so I think that network is significant, and the use of postnominals, being proud of the sector in which we work, which is still, even to our best efforts, not as uh, visible as it should be, and what I'm sure we'll talk at some point about bringing people into the sector mm. and careers and things like that as we go on. Mm. It clearly has the opportunity for different conferences or events at different levels. And uh, we have the summit, which is a leadership conference. For the first time ever this year, uh, we put into play for frontline practitioners and first-line managers base camp, and that was held in Birmingham. Absolutely phenomenal in terms of people's activity. I will say actually that frontline practitioners and first-line managers are better at social media than the leaders at at the summit, Uh, no disrespect to any of them, but it was um, amazing in terms of the exposure that, but more importantly, the engagement of those individuals who will very rarely, because of the nature of our work, be able to be afforded that day to go to anything that isn't an internal requirement uh, training program. Albeit some organizations are are able to do more of that than, mm. than others. And then, of course, you know, so we've got networking and learning, mm. pretty straightforward membership. And then, of course, whilst our primary focus is on the UK and making sure that we continue to deliver the promises there, we've got all these international aspects coming into play. And you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit. This has never moved ever, in essence, from a startup. I mean, it's a grown-up business now, but still, because we keep adding new commodities or new elements to it, like the Quality Improvement Framework, like the Centre for Employability Excellence, like new learning, and then we're adding different countries or territories, as it were, like Australia and Sweden, it feels like you're constantly on that growing journey, which mm. for me is marvellous. I mm. mean, mm. it's it's absolutely brilliant. And to be able to then take, unlike in the early days of the IEP, mm. Where I mentioned it was philosophical, yeah. genuinely. I mean, yeah. there, was, yeah. there wasn't very much really at all. Yeah. It, was, it was an idea yeah. with, with some stuff to back it up. Being able to then transplant all that work and effort over 12 years into a nation like um, Australia mm. is phenomenal. Mm. Instead of going, believe in me, please believe in me, please believe in me. You go, here you go. Yeah. How can you not believe in that? Yeah. And it's uh, it's really interesting.
1: Fantastic. So, you talk about obviously the product mix being uh, expanded. There's a lot of things that you're currently doing. You keep adding to to that. One of those things is about the the fellowship of institute. Uh, so we we have the title. I'm proud to be a fellow and. Talk to us a little bit about what that means and, you know, and and the reason behind the Fellowship FIEP and, the, and where, where yeah. did the idea come from?
2: Well, it was always a, a standing item in our articles. Yeah. So those areas, those membership levels have always been there from the beginning. But right at the beginning, the majority of Fellows were Honorary Fellows. There were people who had set up the, the Institute. And over the years, uh, we built and built and built. And I think there's uh, – forgive me if the – The numbers, if it's not quite right, I'll be right in the next two weeks. About 160 fellows Fellows uh, worldwide. The majority of them in the UK, but worldwide. (coughs) And I'm a very practical person. So I decided with the team that were there. I mean, four years ago, four years ago, I think, yeah, we there was just myself, Helen, and Heather. There were three of us. And Helen and Heather were working part-time. I think I was probably working (laughs) part-time. So it's quite amazing how we've moved on. But I decided then that there just weren't enough people to go around there weren't enough fingers and toes and arms and legs and you know we needed a way of getting the message out there Mm. really effectively but also giving back to individuals who were great advocates Mm. of our Mm. of our institute and so we decided to uh, build a campaign around increasing our fellowship numbers actively going out and speaking to people who we felt were the right people to help Mm. and support us on this this mission Mm. And we did that, and the fellowship has grown exponentially. Mm. But I think also the offer to that fellowship has Mm. grown. Mm. So in a very practical term, they are often leaders, sometimes senior leaders, Mm. but also sometimes practitioners who have led in a commodity that don't want to move into what Mm. we traditionally say senior leadership role. And they get to operate in a network within a network. Mm. And I think the majority of people that have are on that fellowship journey, find that really, really useful. They have immediate access to others that are in similar positions and having the similar challenges and having all those kind of other problems that that everyone faces, but they can have a conversation with an IEP hat on. And they can also have commercial conversations with an IEP hat. Mm-hmm. On. Sometimes it breaks yeah. the ice and yeah. and it's quite a useful commodity. So yeah. they have been the last thing I'll say on that is that you know they've been really, really, really helpful all of them to a man and woman in terms of how we've been able to get the message of the IEP out there and to build our membership our credibility and our capacity for for change
1: okay so on a personal level what sort of levels are membership are there there's obviously the fellowship but there are there are others and, and what does it take to become a fellow if somebody's been working in the sector and so forth how do they look at that in terms of professional growth for themselves? Those people who are joining the
2: sector start at associate level, and then after a year's worth of service taking into consideration that they've qualified Mm. to a particular level within Mm. IEP's learning, Mm. they can be upgraded to member. Uh, It's three years if you haven't done the IEP learning Mm. to become a member. And then we have a new membership level called Member Ambassador. So those people who are qualifying to our level three learning will become member ambassadors. And also, we've reached out to our partners to say, do you have people within your organization? Member ambassador is a bit like the fellowship thing. We're yeah. going to be doing a lot more activity through those okay. individuals. Okay. And then, of course, fellowship. Fellowship requires, so I've, I've explained associate yeah. member and member ambassador. Fellowship requires a significant number of years in the sector. It requires for that to be proven through a CV application. And then if that is passed through the fellowship committee, then in essence, that individual is invited to a professional discussion. And I don't know about you, Saf, but I never did it that way. I I was through a committee with a board and everything, and and it really wasn't particularly a professional discussion. It was great, but it was a lot of paper application. Mm. And we decided to make this move a few years ago because we wanted this to be a real discussion, a Mm. bit like this, to really get to the bottom of people's intent and their Mm. understanding. And I think that the majority of people that go through that process, which is hugely robust by the way, Mm. uh, are taking an opportunity also to probably have the very first time in a very long time to reflect on their careers. I I, I don't know. I mean, you know, when you get to your level, Saf, and everything that you've done, I expect it would feel quite strange to often sit there in front of the TV or something, right. or, or reflect. It's not what people do. So actually having an hour to sit down with your peers and actually get under the skin of what you've done is immense. Yeah. It's, quite, it's really cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. And actually from the other side of the table doing those assessments, those professional discussions, it's really cathartic for the assessors because they hear. The backstory that people have often that they would never have imagined—absolutely, it's phenomenal.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I, I find it to be—I mean, to a certain level, I mean, many of us sort of suffer a little bit of imposter syndrome to a certain level, and we don't have that reflective sort of way of things, and we just move from one issue to another issue or whatever the case is or whatever the challenge is. And when this came on my radar, I thought, yeah, this is this is interesting, and I. Well, I knew about the interview. I did worry, you know, what, you know, preparation, and you know, you talk to people and say, "Yeah, I know you'll be fine. Just you know, you be, just be yourself, and so forth." But there is that anxiety that's there. But honestly, it was probably the most refreshing because you start reflecting a little bit in terms of achievements and so forth, and it says, and, and and it puts you in a different perspective. But as I said, it's probably one of the best things that I did. Uh, and I'm absolutely proud to have FIEP after my name, and and I think uh, I I feel part of a community. Yeah. yeah, and and sometimes you know you're all doing your own thing, and you feel like you know yeah I belong to this sector, I belong to this community, and and when you're going to these events, I think it's just brilliant that you know you're with like-minded people and. And you're you're talking chop talk, but it's just on a different level. And absolutely brilliant in terms of setting that community up and and growing that community, Scott.
2: It feels very comfortable, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that we've been out. I always said it's kind of in my nature to want to do this. I want to look after everybody. I don't know what it is and why I do that. But in essence, it is in my nature. So I always said the summit's a really good example of that. Can you imagine there's 180 people in a room? There's four Seasoned speakers, lots of networking, lots of opportunity to engage with each other. But I always said that I wanted the conversation in that room to be like the one you would have in your grandma's front room—to yeah. be that comfortable yeah. and to be able to. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think you can save the world in your grandma's front room. Yeah. Quite. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, you know, you know, you do that. You cultivate that environment, and you make people so, so sort of comfortable. Um, and you know, you have that. Dare I say that servant leadership about you to say you know what is everything okay? Who can I connect you with? Who can I help? Who you know what can you do? And you just sort of just make it easy, even if you know as I said the first one I came to, I knew a couple of people. Uh, then you sort of just doing introductions and you say, yeah, I do know you actually, but it's just it's just a brilliant environment and there's a very very much a lot of peer support, a lot of peer encouragement and uh, yeah, congratulations and hats off to you for that. Just that that on its own, I think is just a massive win. For all of us.
2: Uh, no, and I, I appreciate that massively, but I think it seems to me relatively counterintuitive not to understand, A, the power of people and a movement yeah. and how you can engender that to make change. It yeah. strikes me that I think we undervalue human beings yeah. quite significantly in society, and, and actually human beings are the only thing that makes anything change. So, I think and I'll, I'll take that, but I actually think that it, it's just common sense to be able to get people together and get them work, uh, working on a yeah. singular agenda.
1: Scott, I mean, thank you for, for, for sharing that with us. And in terms of uh, other stakeholders within the organization, and you, and you mentioned. Uh, uh, a, a few names earlier on there's many others that are doing their thing as well and and there's a lot of partnership work a lot of sort of strategic alliances and so forth so in terms of you know the, the sector itself partnership working and so forth and you're a big believer in doing that and you're open to to having those conversations so talk to us a little bit about some of those sort of relationships and partnerships that you have uh how does how does that work and 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 what some of those activities that you you know you thrive on
2: Obviously, I mean, I couldn't be doing the job I'm doing without being a firm believer in, yeah. in delivering through partnerships. Yeah. But I think it's quite, for me, it's quite basic. Worldwide evidence states mm. that the only thing that works for employability practice is the trust that's built between one human being and another. That's the only thing, yeah? You can have the best systems, you can have the best organization, the shiniest offices, you can have all of these things. And they're brilliant, by the way, because they give comfort that an organization is doing what it needs to do, but ultimately it's about the people. If you then look at employer solutions and how you engage with employers, strangely enough, the same thing is true. It's the trust that's built between somebody working in employer solutions and the employer, and the opportunity to converse on a a regular basis with them about their Mm -hmm. needs. So why wouldn't the same be true in terms of getting work done or formulating a Mm -hmm. policy or developing strategy? We work very openly with a lot of organizations, Mm. Uh, most formally, URSA, ALP, Learning Work Institute, the Institute of Employment Studies through our REACT work and outside of that, but also many, many others. And it comes back to the belief that if you are many, there's more opportunity to make change. And clearly, there are organizations of which I've mentioned there who have different skills in different elements of what we need to achieve. And there is no way that I think the IEP can do any of this on its own. And I think some great, I've mentioned the React partnership before. I think that's a great example of partnership working. That is eight prime organizations across. We start funding research and innovation in real time whilst the program is in live running. It's never, ever happened before. And so for me... Working alongside Ursa and the Institute of Employment Studies enables us to do that work really effectively. And also we've grown as an organisation in that to be exemplars of action learning sets mm. and action learning in general. Mm. So it enables us to grow and learn also within that environment whilst delivering value for those individuals that are funding that activity.
1: Okay. Scott, part of your work involves sort of knocking on doors, and be that sort of government ministers or or sort of commissioners and so forth. You know, what, what would you say is currently the sort of state of play in terms of how open are they for those conversations? How open are they in terms of how close are they to really what's going on from your perspective?
2: Wow, I mean, that's that's quite a big question, isn't mm. it? I think ministers in general are open from my interactions with them. I think they're always very, very interesting solutions, there is no doubt. But I think most of my work has been with commissioners, and commissioners have been very, very open, um, I think, which is really, really exciting. They have been able to create this collaborative culture. They have been able to steward the market. That's with the help of the IEP and other organisations supporting it, including URSA and BASE and others. But I think that they, once again, understand the need for partnership and support to get some of these challenges reconciled. The quality improvement framework that we've designed alongside the sector is a really good example of that. So we've gone back to basics in terms of how you go about measuring or championing or changing Mm. quality culture. And DWP Commercial have been front and center, and DWP Operations, by the way, been front and center along that journey with us. And it was really important to have them as a stakeholder that has is now in its co-design phase with six partners. We'll be launching very excitingly a co-design project in Sweden in January and probably in Australia to follow that quality improvement framework goes back to the point that human beings are the same the world over. I appreciate you can't take language and culture away, Mm. but in essence, human beings are human beings. Mm. There is the, Absolute ingrained need for purpose. Work is a great way to secure purpose, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt. And ultimately, if that's the case, then the way that you engender a qualitative environment for which they they are served is the same. So those principles are the same. And if you, once again, back to the professional practice, if that's the same as well, then the way you need to manage that, the way you need to quality assure that, the way you need to improve it, the way I suppose, in essence, the way you need to be compliant is relatively similar. And uh, our relationship is is really good in all those mm. areas and always found it a very collaborative and collegiate approach to everything.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Scott. Uh, I'm gonna change tack a little bit, if I may, Scott. I'm
0: afraid that's where we must leave the conversation until next week. Thanks to Scott Parkin from the Institute of Employability Professionals for his time and insight. Next week, you'll be able to hear the second part of this conversation between Safraz and Scott. So if you don't want to miss that, then remember to subscribe or follow us. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you, there are already 80 other Canny Conversations podcast episodes out there. And you can listen to all those past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform, or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. We'd also love it if you could review, subscribe, or follow the podcast, and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversations.co.uk, or go to Safraz's website, that's safraz.co.uk. Safraz has also written a series of easy to follow business books, Canny Bites, these are available from cannybytes.co.uk forward slash by the book. As I said, we'll be back next week to hear the second part of this conversation between Safra Ali and Scott Parkin from the Institute of Employability Professionals. So until then, have a good week. This is a
2: 1386 audio production.